0: My name is Farah Ozbek, and welcome to Military Law Matters, the podcast that gives you insight into military law so you know your rights and you don't become a victim of injustice. Today, we'll be talking to Tom Clare, a lawyer who is an expert in defamation law. Tom has represented clients against high-profile reputational attacks in print, broadcast, and online media outlets, and he's won a defamation lawsuit on behalf of a client against the Rolling Stone. He also represents military members who have been targeted in hostile media investigations. You will definitely want to listen to this to learn what not to do to prevent committing defamation and what to do if you are a victim of defamation. Hi, Tom. It is great to have you on our show today. Glad you can join us on Military Law Matters, the podcast that serves the best listeners in the world, members and former members of the United States Armed Forces. How are you doing today, Tom?
1: I'm doing great. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you for having me.
0: Thank you. And where are you joining us today from? Where are you located?
1: So uh, I'm calling from my uh, law office, which is in Alexandria, Virginia, right in the Old Town, Alexandria Waterfront.
0: Oh, okay, great. Well, let me, speaking about your uh, law office and practice, let me tell the listeners about what you do. So, Tom... Tom Clare is an attorney who's devoted uh, to litigating complex business disputes and vindicating clients against high-profile reputational attacks in print, broadcast, and online media outlets. Tom recently represented University of Virginia Associate Dean Nicole Aramo in her defamation lawsuit against Rolling Stone magazine relating to a highly publicized article falsely alleging the cover-up of an alleged gang rape on campus. In November 2016, a jury found the defendants liable for defamation and awarded Ms. Ramo $3 million in damages. Virginia Lawyers Weekly included the case as an annual compilation of the largest verdicts for 2016. So that was uh, quite a case, uh, Tom. So, Tom, you know, on the show, it's our job to arm our listeners with knowledge so they don't become a victim of injustice. And I know you are ready to arm our listeners with very important information today. You know, Tom Clare has expertise in many areas of law, but he's best known for representing the high-profile clients who are targeted in hostile media investigations or the subject of false statements in the press, including military officials. So, Tom, first, can you please educate our listeners on defamation? What is the legal definition of defamation?
1: Sure. So uh, defamation is uh, a a word uh, that encompasses both libel and slander. um, And it's kind of an umbrella term that applies to both of those things. And defamation is when a false statement is made about you uh, that injures your reputation. And defamation is the claim that you would bring in order to, to vindicate your reputation. Um, it has certain legal elements which we can talk about, but, uh, it's uh, a tort claim. So it's uh, not like a breach of contract claim. It's not a criminal claim. It's a civil claim that a plaintiff can bring against the defendant for injury to reputation.
0: Okay. Well, that was a very good, simple definition. Now, does that apply to anyone? How about if you're a public figure and, you know, a movie star or someone who's constantly in the news, can you also sue for defamation?
1: Yes. So public figures uh, can sue for defamation. Uh, The courts, uh, because of the First Amendment and freedom of speech, uh, the courts have created uh, different legal standards that apply for people who are public figures. And so, if you're a public figure, uh, you may have to satisfy a higher standard. In other words, you have to a higher burden of proof that you would have to show than if you're just a uh, a private figure.
0: Okay. So, and you mentioned libel and slander. So what is the difference between the two? They're both under defamation, but how, can you explain the difference?
1: Sure. So um, defamation is the umbrella term. Libel is basically written defamation. So if it's, you know, in a newspaper or in a pamphlet or um, on the Internet, something that's in written form, uh, slander is spoken Defamation. So if you were to one person were to say something defamatory to uh, another person, uh, it would be uh, verbal defamation. And the law used to harp on that distinction quite a bit uh, back when these concepts were working their way through the courts and and being uh, defined because written defamation obviously has a certain permanence to it. It was written down. It was in a newspaper. It, It could be referred to again and again. Uh, And so there were there used to be certain rules that applied uh, differently to written defamation versus uh, verbal defamation. So the distinction between libel and slander used to be a lot more important Um, today. Uh, most of those distinctions have gone away, and the courts, uh, especially in the Internet era, where the line between written and spoken defamation, uh, you know, a YouTube video, for example, I mean, it does have a a certain presence. It's written down in, in a way that you can access it on the Internet again and again, but it's also spoken in that it would have a verbal component to it. And uh, so the line has largely been um, eliminated, and those distinctions have largely been eliminated. And the courts just deal with them all under the rubric of defamation, by and large.
0: Okay. Okay. Interesting. Yeah. And we, with internet and everything being so public, and people, you know, making YouTube videos, I'm sure there's lots of fodder for, for cases out there. So when you're, you're talking about defamation, what must a victim prove uh, to establish that defamation occurred? You, you were talking there were different prongs to that.
1: Sure. So in order to to state a claim for defamation, you have to allege and prove that the defendant made a false statement of fact that's about the plaintiff uh, that causes damage to reputation and that it was made with that the statement was made with a certain state of mind and for public figures. Um, that state of mind is actual malice so it's a false statement of fact made about the plaintiff with actual malice that injures the plaintiff's reputation
0: okay so when you talk for our, the benefit of our listeners when you're talking about actual malice does that mean the member making that false statement must know that it was false
1: so uh, it, what what it, it, it means the the, the, court, the definition of actual malice is that the statement was made with knowledge of its falsity. So you knew it was false or that you recklessly disregarded the truth or falsity of the statement. And so, you know, the way this really plays out in court cases, um, when we bring a, a claim for defamation, the defendant never admits um, on the witness stand that, I knew this was false when I made it, the statement. They always you know, say that they believed in its truth. And so the way that this actually gets litigated is trying to prove that they recklessly disregarded the truth or falsity of the statement. So what we typically try to show is that they had information in their possession that demonstrated that what they were saying was false. And then we argue to the court in the first instance in the jury um, that they recklessly disregarded that information.
0: Okay, very interesting. So when you say have, could it be that they if they didn't actually possess it, that they had the ability to obtain it easily? I mean, there's lots of things you could research to determine if something's true. or d- when you say have, what do, what does that mean that they actually possess that information or they could have researched it and found out the answer easily?
1: Um well, it, it, so it was say yes and yes um, th- that it, it it depends. It's very fact specific. It depends on the particular case. But um, as a basic principle, you have to show that it was something that they um, either had or had ready access to, Um, you know, just saying something was publicly available, for example, and could have been discovered with, you know, reasonable diligence. That's not going to cut it because the courts have held in order to show actual malice that a failure to investigate, a simple failure to investigate uh, is not actual malice. So you can do a bad job of investigating and be a, you know, a a bad reporter, uh, and not research appropriately and write something false and you'll have be protected. But, uh, if you, for example, have, uh, you know a, a file on the, the story that you're writing as a reporter and in that file is information that shows what you're about to write is is false or you have you know somebody sends you a, a, an internet link to an article um, then you're charged with that knowledge and we say that that is evidence that you're recklessly disregarding that contrary information in order to print the, the defamatory statement.
0: Okay. And, and how is that actually discovered then through the discovery? How, how does uh, the plaintiff uh, get that information that the individual who uh, defamed him or her had that information?
1: Uh, well, sometimes, uh, you, you know, sometimes y- you'll know uh, because the plaintiff may have been working with the defendant even in advance of the publication of the story. So, Um, for example, many times our firm gets involved before a news article gets published, our client will, will contact us and and retain us to interact with a newspaper, for example, that's investigating the story. And part of our job then is to, um, shove information to the reporter that demonstrates what the reporter wants to write as false. And so we're kind of building the record, if you will, ahead of time before the story gets written. So we can show actual malice after the story gets written. If they disregard the information that we've provided prior to publication, then we argue that it was, uh, that was the evidence of actual malice. But in a case where that doesn't happen and, you know, the article appears and out of the blue and you didn't have an opportunity to provide information prior to publication, um, that's where discovery comes in and you'll, uh, seek, you know, the drafts of the article, you'll seek, uh, the reporter's notes and files and that sort of thing, and then try to um, discover that.
0: Okay. Very, very, yeah, it sounds very complex. So, you know, um, Tom, I'm very interested in this because I've actually worked with clients who, um, you know, in a, who are under criminal investigation, and I've had clients in the past ask me, For example, someone made a complaint against them, a criminal complaint, and they said it was absolutely false, and now they're undergoing either a court-martial or some type of adverse action because of that, and they've actually asked me, you know, I want to, you know, after this is over, sue the person for defamation, and... So, what, if a military member did, uh, you know, ask that, can they sue for defamation in a case that involves, uh, you know, a criminal allegations against them? If, I guess if they're later vindicated or maybe not, I'm not, I'm not certain. Maybe they're not even vindicated in a criminal. Uh, setting, but what, what's your um, recommendation in a case like that?
1: Well, um, it, it, you know, there, it's very fact specific. Uh, there's no you know one size fits all answer to that. But as a general matter, uh, you the, the law does provide for certain immunities for defamation um, defendants. So if you make a report to the police, for example, or report to uh through proper channels in the military organization and you know following sort of an official established process to file a complaint against someone and that is the statement that is the allegedly false statement that's being made um most states not all but most states have a privilege uh or an immunity for those statements because they don't want people to be discouraged from making official reports uh through proper channels Uh, Because they fear defamation liability. So in that setting, if that's the only statement that existed, that an official charge or official complaint made through proper channels, uh, most likely you would not be able to bring a claim for defamation against uh, the complainant. But what what we what we see a lot is the complainant uh, makes those same statements or same allegations outside that protected channel outside that the channel of of communication uh, to bring the charges and so for example um, in uh, if the complainant were to file a charge of harassment against uh, a military officer and that follow proper procedures and proper channels then that would not that statement alone would not be subjected to uh, defamation liability but if that same person said the exact same thing on twitter or to a neighbor, or around base, um, those communications of that same information are not protected. And so a lot of times what we're looking for is uh, a communication, a statement that's made outside of kind of official channels that that then is not immunized from liability. And th- those two can exist side by side.
0: Okay. So does that, so if this individual who made the complaints on Twitter, let, let's say it made a complaint, but this, the person she made, let's say she made the complaint against, he, he was actually in fact convicted of the offense. Does that, how does that affect the defamation lawsuit? If the person is actually found guilty for the crime that she, the, the alleged victim made def- and, and what the person is saying he was defamed about.
1: Yeah. So it's, it's difficult because um, at, at, when I was recounting a few minutes ago, the, the different things you have to prove, one of the things you have to demonstrate is that the statement is false. And if, Um, the plaintiff is adjudicated to have been guilty or liable of the the conduct that is the subject of the charge you're going to have a very difficult time proving that the that the statement was false because you have had you know an official finding that uh that there was merit to the allegation and so you're going to have a very hard time doing that um and you know in most courts if you've been adjudicated to being guilty or liable of the underlying conduct, that's likely to get you thrown out at a very early stage. That's not a, an argument that would get presented to a jury. That's something that a judge would look at and say, you cannot establish that this was false because you obviously you know, were found guilty.
0: Okay, okay. Well, that actually, Tom, brings us to a case I r- recall reading about not long ago um, this pa- this month uh, in the press, actually, that took place in Virginia. It was a case regarding a retired colonel, um, Colonel Riggins, I believe his name was, who brought a, lo- a defamation lawsuit in court and, and won quite a High verdict. Is there anything you can comment about that case and your thoughts about it? I mean, I know it's still under appeal. It's not your case, but anything you can share with our listeners, I think it might they might find it interesting.
1: Sure, I, I think it is a very interesting case. Um, and as you said, I was not involved in it. We did not represent any of the parties in that case, but uh, we're certainly paying close attention to it because um, it was a, it was a very large verdict. Um, And sort of observation number one about it is uh, it demonstrates the value that real people put on reputation if your reputation has been injured. Um, when you get in front of a jury and if you're able to establish all those elements that I talked about, um, juries get it. They understand the value of a reputation, especially for someone as decorated in, as Colonel Riggins uh, and you know, things like being held up for promotion or, or having your professional career impacted by these false allegations. Um, and they're willing to, to compensate for it. They're willing to make large you know, awards um, based on that. The the interesting thing about the Riggins case, uh, one of the interesting things that that I found was that it, it it happened so far after the underlying facts had occurred, and it happened because the complainant was blogging about those allegations. You know, she had made this uh, the, these charges, and um, it, instead of as I said earlier, going through the official channels and, and leaving it at that, chose to blog about this episode that had happened uh, allegedly happened years and years earlier. And by typing that blog post uh, and commenting on it on the internet, um, she restarted the statute of limitations because the statute of limitations starts when the publication goes up to a new audience, and that would have been with her blog post. And that gave uh, the colonel an opportunity to, you know, to bring this action against her. Uh, the other thing that I found interesting about the Riggins case, um, and it may be uh, instructive for other uh, folks in the military who are you know, considering bringing these claims, is the case was not tried to an actual malice standard. Um, I said earlier that if you're a public figure, that, uh, that the actual malice standard applies, and um, somewhat surprising to me, uh, that case was not tried to the actual malice standard. It was tried to a negligence standard, which is the standard that applies in Virginia if you're not a public figure. And so, uh, the Colonel only had to prove that the statements were made negligently by the, the defendant. And that's obviously a much lower burden than showing it was made with actual malice, Uh, perhaps he would have been able to do it anyway because, you know, he was obviously um, suing the person who had made these allegations. And so it's going to all in her mind. It's not like she was investigating, uh, researching the way a reporter would. But um, I did find it interesting that uh, it was uh, tried to a negligence standard as opposed to the actual malice standard. so what does that mean for your listeners? Um, It's, it may be a very interesting and useful precedent if you're a military officer or, um, you know, in a position of some prominence in the military, uh, it may, may be a useful precedent to explain to a court why you should not have to satisfy that actual malice standard and that it should be tried to a lesser standard that would apply in, you know, in your state.
0: Okay. When you, um, Tom, you talked about the statute of limitations. What is the statute of limitations for these cases?
1: Very short. Uh, it has the, it is the, uh, Every state is different, but um, the longest statute of limitations in the United States is, I believe, two years. There may be one state that has a three-year statute, but uh, I, don't, I don't believe so. Uh, the One year is the norm, I would say, in the vast majority of states. You have one year from the date of publication of the statement to, to start your lawsuit. And that is true whether you know about the statement being published or not. And so you can easily imagine a scenario where something false gets published about you you know, on a Facebook post that you don't see for over a year and then you finally see it a year later or somebody brings it to your attention or it pops up in a Google search and you say, ah, I've been defamed and I want to bring the lawsuit um you know, the, the rule does not allow you to, to, to discover it within a year. It, it assumes that if it's been published, that statute starts right away. So um, another lesson uh, for your listeners is if you believe that you've been the subject of defamation, uh, you don't have a lot of time. It's important to you know take steps immediately to try to protect yourself and to consider whether or not you have a claim because the clock is ticking from the date the, the post was uh,
0: originally put up. Okay. That's, that's good to know. I didn't know that. So it's one year. So, and Tom, so I know the huge case you were involved with, um, regarding, and I I know I remember reading about that, the Dean at, um, University of Virginia, Nicole Ramo. Can you, um, discuss what you can about that case? I know she was actually your, your your client, right?
1: Sure. We, uh, we had the great privilege of representing, uh, Dean Ramo in that case. Um, it was a, a very, widely publicized uh, article in Rolling Stone magazine uh, about a gang rape that had allegedly occurred at a fraternity uh, at the on the University of Virginia campus. And uh, it told a, a kind of a very graphic story of this young woman named Jackie, who uh made these allegations that she had been you know forcibly gang raped at this fraternity and, and badly injured in this this rape and that she had uh, tried to hold her attackers accountable and uh, administrators at the University of Virginia and specifically our client Nicola ramo had suppressed it had been indifferent to her reports of rape and had had not, done things because that they were worried about bad publicity and that they didn't want this to come out. And that was the the premise of this article, this Rolling Stone article, is the institutional indifference at UVA uh, and of Nicola Ramo in particular to Jackie's story of, of gang rape. And so, uh, on behalf of Dina Ramo, we filed a lawsuit. Uh, it lasted uh, about two years, a year and a half, from the time we filed it to the time we went through discovery and took all the depositions and gathered all the documents and interviewed all the witnesses. And we had a uh, three-week jury trial in Charlottesville, Virginia, last October. At the conclusion of the trial, uh, the jury awarded uh, Dina Ramo three million dollars for. Uh, the damage that had been done to her reputation, um, and, uh, and, and the like. And, and, uh, it, the case was, uh, in the middle of kind of post trial motions when, uh, we settled it, uh, after the, the jury verdict in our favor. But we were very, very pleased for, for Nicole to get, uh, you know, recognized by the jury that, uh, that this story had been false about her. We had to, of course, demonstrate that the portrayal of her in the article was false and also to have that vindication by the courts that uh that the story was false and had been written with uh with actual malice that was a case where um uh, dean arama was found by the court to be a public figure she's an assistant dean at the university of virginia it's a public school and and the court reasoned that uh that was a position of sufficient prominence that she was a public figure so we did have to have to prove actual malice but it was a very very Important case. It was a very um, interesting case to work on, and um, we're just very gratified that uh, the jury got it right and um, found uh, found for Nicole.
0: Yeah, justice prevailed in that case, right? So um, I'm sure it was. You know, I I don't know all the details, but I remember reading about it. So I'm sure it's. uh, feels good to, to be vindicated and, uh, you know, with the help of a lawyer, someone with expertise such as you. So, um, Tom, I know you have some military clients and obviously you can't talk about all your clients, but I know you had uh, in our discussions, you had mentioned that you were helping General McCaffrey on a case. Is there anything you could share with us about that case involving defamation?
1: Uh, sure uh, you know the fact of our representation was uh, was, was public uh, the case uh, it never actually went to court but it, it was made public that we were representing him and um, you know General McCaffrey was the subject of some very biased and false reporting by the New Yorker magazine and investigative uh, journalist Cy Hirsch. Uh, was Pulitzer Prize winner, and he uh, was investigating a story that General McCaffrey had used excessive force in the first Gulf War, and in fact, had committed war crimes. Um, and so, of course, that w- that sort of allegation was uh, demonstrably false. But that sort of allegation, published in the New Yorker, would have a, a significant negative impact on on the reputation of a of a, of a highly decorated army general. And so uh, we were retained to assist General McCaffrey both before that article was published and then after the article was published to, uh, you know, in the first instance, to try to establish that uh, the story was false and that they should not be publishing it to try to get the story changed and toned down. And then when the story came out, to seek certain corrections and retractions of things that had been overstated or misstated. And. Uh, and so that's about all I can say publicly about it. But uh, it, it was a very interesting case because it involved uh, a lot of very sensitive military information about troop movements and about uh, the specific tactical decisions that the general had to make on the battlefield about where and how to deploy certain resources and where and how to deploy certain lethal and non-lethal force. And so um, it really was, uh, you know, very uh, interesting subject matter, and uh, we feel uh, we're very happy that we were able to help uh, help the general out with uh, not being subjected to uh, you know, false reporting in that way.
0: Great. Yeah. So, I mean, it's important. One of the takeaways then, if you could share with our audience, you know, because our listeners are the military community, active duty, retired, reservists. And, you know, some people may not, I mean, you went over the prongs, but is there a takeaway or something you could share with someone who perhaps, let's talk about the person who perhaps might be committing the act of defamation. Uh, what are the things? I know you went over the you know criteria, but things they really need to be careful about when they're either speaking or blogging. You know, internet, YouTube videos. Uh, what's like the big lesson here?
1: Yeah, it's uh, you know, pay attention uh, to the forum that you're speaking in. Um, you're much safer um, speaking in. Uh, kind of official channels or making official reports as opposed to doing things on the internet and and chat rooms and over email and those sorts of things uh will create a, a greater risk um you know make sure you have your facts right uh and if you the other i guess big takeaway i would say is um you know statements of opinion are not actionable you can have a a negative opinion about someone and you can express your negative opinions all you want that's not defamation to say you know i think tom Clare is a lousy lawyer that's a statement of opinion because you know what does it mean to be a lousy lawyer your your definition of that might be different than mine um and so you know couching your statements as statements of opinion will also provide you with additional layer of protection to being very factual you know tom Clare missed a statute of limitations for one of his clients and therefore committed malpractice. That's a much more factual statement that would, would end up in, in creating more liability risk for you. So, um, I think that's, you know, that's certainly very, uh, very important. And, and the other final takeaway I would say is, um, you know, there is no such thing as a, as a private communication, uh, in the internet world, uh, any email that you send a tweet or a Facebook post or, uh, even, a, a blog post among a very small circle of people that you believe are your friends uh or your colleagues or your members of your unit or whoever you're communicating with, um, you know, in a digital world, that communication can be forwarded, it can go viral, it can go uh and blow up and and be seen millions and millions and millions of times in a very short period and do an enormous amount of reputational harm. And so Um, you know, we always counsel our clients to be very careful in what they put in writing. Um, even digitally, you know, we make the joke that, uh, Uh, the e in email stands for exhibit and see you in (laughs) in, it so be careful what you put in uh in emails and other digital communications
0: that was i never heard of that i like that Uh, that's 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 good probably very good advice so well how about the other way how about if there's a and it doesn't have to be military of course but since that's our military or veteran is a victim of defamation i mean what's the first thing he or she should do
1: Um, Well, uh, I I think, you know, in order to to protect uh, yourself, uh, if you believe that you've been victimized by defamation, uh, you should work to make a record uh, that the statement about you is false um, and to seek a a retraction of it. Make a written request as quickly as you can to the speaker and ask them to retract that statement. Some states require you to do that. Um, in order to seek certain categories of damages or in order to bring a claim. And it's also a really good idea because if you leave a false statement out there um, unrebutted without a uh, request for retraction or correction it it looks like in a legal later legal proceeding it looks like you didn't really believe it was false or you didn't really believe it was damaged you were damaged by it and so make that record to let the speaker know you think it's false and make a very specific request for correction or retraction um, if it's you know serious enough and and i say that that's an important threshold but if it's serious enough that it is having a significant impact on your reputation or your profession or your ability to earn a livelihood, then it's worth consulting with experienced defamation counsel to understand whether you've got a claim or not. Um, These lawsuits, because of the First Amendment, are very difficult to win Um, They're very time consuming. They're very expensive. They're emotionally exhausting for the people that have to go through them because, uh, you know, it requires a lot of energy and resources to prosecute one of these claims. And so uh, getting some good advice from experienced defamation lawyers who will kind of tell you how good your claim is and whether it's worth all of that uh, is is certainly very important um, to, you know, before making that decision. Uh, I always tell folks that, um, you know, it's such a specialized area of the law because of the First Amendment, because of a lot of the constitutional underpinnings of of the, the freedom of speech, that um, there's a lot of law- a lot of lawyers out there just are not that familiar with the concepts of it. And there's a lot of icebergs uh, in the water. If you don't know what you're doing, uh, you can bring a claim and you can actually make it worse for yourself if you don't do it the right way. Um because uh, I'll give you just two examples of, of how that could happen. Um, many states have statutes that are uh, called anti slap statutes, and that stands for Strategic Lawsuit Against Public Participation. And so these are anti slap statutes, and many states have them. And if you bring a defamation case in a state that has one of these anti-slap statutes and if it applies to your case every state's statute is different but uh, many states say that if you lose that claim if you lose your defamation claim that you can be responsible for having to pay the attorney's fees of the defendant so you can make it worse for yourself by not just losing your case but also having to pay the defendant's legal fees that you force them to incur by bringing that claim the other way that mm-hmm. which is, you know, obviously not a, it's a risk that you need to be aware of going in. And uh, many general practitioners are unaware that those statutes even exist. And so it's, that's why I say it's important to get um, you a know, very specialized counsel to advise you on whether you have a good claim or not. And then the second thing where you could make it worse is, you know, bringing a weak claim in court. Um, is, is uh, there are many different ways that a case can get dismissed uh, for you know hundreds of reasons uh, that have nothing really to do with the underlying merits of, of whether it, it's false or true. But if you don't plead the, the complaint correctly or if you are unable to establish that it was made with actual malice and the court throws your case out, what that does is it, it basically will be viewed by the public as a vindication of the truth of what was being said. You, you tried to sue for defamation and your case was thrown out. And so the speaker, the person who had made the original statement, will view that as a license to continue making that statement because now it's been found by a court to be non-defamatory. And other people in the community will view that as a court having said, well, it must be true. And so you can, you can end up making it worse for yourself by bringing additional publicity to a statement, by bringing a public lawsuit. Um, and, uh, so again, just, you know, proceed carefully.
0: That makes sense. Um, as you were talking about the retraction, I was thinking if someone, you know, did believe they were a victim of defamation and want to contact the person who made the the state written statement, oral statement, and ask for a retraction, I would think sometimes I would think they would hire they could also hire a lawyer to do that to ask the lawyer or the law firm to ask for a retraction so they know they're serious and might be taken more seriously to get that retraction versus doing it themselves. Do you sometimes help clients? In that phase of you know before there's a lawsuit, just asking for the retraction, or do you just handle the case once you're going to court?
1: No, uh, w- w- all the time we uh, we get brought in after a, a defamatory statement has been made to handle the retraction demand. I mean, it's you know it's a precursor to uh, to bringing a lawsuit in many instances, but uh, no, there is that's a, a pretty significant part of what we do is uh, draft correction demands and retraction demands. And um, as you say, sometimes you can be taken much more seriously if, you're, uh, if that letter comes from a lawyer. Uh, we typically address our letters to lawyers. Um, if we're writing to a news publication, for example, we'll write to the general counsel of the, the newspaper. And so then it becomes a question of, of legal risk. For the, the newspaper or the publication, they've got to decide whether or not the legal risk of not retracting is worth taking. And, you know, a lot of times the reporter is very invested in their their story and is going to be unlikely to want to retract or correct anything, whereas the, the lawyer uh, or business person is a lot less invested in the story and more thinking about legal risk and, and accountability. So uh, it can have that additional benefit
0: as well. Okay, Oh, that was an excellent overview. I I actually learned a lot listening uh, to your answers. Tom, so if someone, you know, feels they were defamed and needs your help, how can you help? Are you, do you help clients in in the area you're working out of or what, where is, uh, where are your clients mostly and how can you help?
1: So we have a, we have a national practice. Um, we're based here in Alexandria, Virginia, and, uh, but our clients are all over the country. Uh, many of our clients are, are international. Um, so we coordinate with lawyers, uh, in other countries as well. So we don't really have a geographic uh, boundary. Um, We like to think we're knowledgeable about about the laws of 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 the states uh, of all the states uh, with some additional research. Um, But uh, you know, we uh, would certainly encourage folks to reach out and contact us if they uh, they feel that they've got a a legitimate issue. You know, one other thing I guess I should say uh, to your your audience um, is uh, whether it's our firm or other firms that do this kind of work. Uh, it's not the kind of thing that typically gets done on a contingency basis. Um, there is a cost, a financial cost, to, to you know, to to bringing these claims and pursuing these things because uh, the outcome is is very uncertain and the dollar amount that you can recover is very uncertain. It's not like a physical injury case where you you know know what your medical bills were, or you know how much it costs to repair your car, and you can kind of estimate what your recovery is going to be and figure out what a contingency fee arrangement would be. And so most of our engagements, uh, virtually all of them are done on an hourly basis. And, um, but uh, we don't, we certainly don't charge for the initial, you know, conversation to see if it makes sense to be retained. And so I would say, you know, reach out to us or reach out to other knowledgeable defamation counsel uh, to, um, you know, to try to get that assessment.
0: Okay. And, and we'll certainly going to put your your website, et cetera, on our, on the, the link to the website, but what is the best way to reach you
1: um, but probably uh, email is probably the best. Uh, my email address is uh, tom, T-O-M, at clairelock.com, C-L-A-R-E-L-O-C-K-E.com. Uh, and that way it'll find me wherever... I am in the country.
0: Okay, perfect. Well, Tom, I know you're a very busy person, very busy lawyer. So thank you so much for taking the time to share your legal expertise on this very, very specific area of law defamation. It was really fascinating. And I know, you know, it has applicability as we see to military members and and to other members in their civilian capacity as well, but very informative. Uh, You explained it, you know, so it was very crystal clear um, the way you explained everything. So thank you so much for taking the time to share your tips with our listeners. And, uh, And perhaps we can uh, have another chat another time about perhaps another area of law or another case that you're working on. So thanks again, Tom. I really appreciate it.
1: It's my great pleasure. Thank you again for having me.
0: Thanks for listening today. If you want to learn more about military law topics so you're armed with knowledge, subscribe to my podcast. Head over to our website, MilitaryLawMatters.com. And if you have a problem I can help you with... Or if there are topics you'd like to learn more about, send me an email at info at militarylawmatters.com. And if you know someone who this podcast may help, please share it with them. The takeaway today is to be careful what you say or print online or publicly about someone. You may be committing defamation. You are not immune if you have actual malice or show reckless disregard when making statements about others. Until next week, stay well and never, ever give up because there is always hope.